Our sermon passage this morning is John 12, verses 44 to 50. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You may be seated. Let's pray to open. Heavenly Father, as we consider your scriptures today, Lord, we ask for your help. Your inspired word must be spiritually discerned, and so we ask that you would give us your light, that you would grant your Holy Spirit to open our ears and eyes and enable our hearts and minds to receive your truths. May everything I say be according to your word and to the edification of your people. May anything unnecessary fall away. By your grace, Lord, may those here who have not previously heard and believed the gospel do so this morning. May your word bear fruit as you intend. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing on in John's gospel this morning with the final few verses of chapter 12. Um, last week, Pastor Riley took us partway through Jesus' final public exchange with the Pharisees, in which we saw a confirmation of the prophet Isaiah's words fulfilled, which was the large-scale judicial hardening of the Jews. They would not believe, they could not believe, that Christ was the Messiah. Even many of those who did have a semblance of belief uh, refused to confess Christ for their fear of the Pharisees and being put out of the synagogue. We concluded then that belief without the willingness to confess and follow Christ needs to be warned against and repented of. The scriptures say that with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The two must go hand in hand. Obedience to Christ is not only a private act, it is a public one as well, even if it comes with a cost. And so in our passage today, Jesus puts forth his final call to commit. It's a last public challenge to believe uh, that he makes to this mixed multitude of followers before withdrawing from the crowds and preparing for Calvary. In his remaining time preceding the Passover and leading up to the cross, Jesus will focus almost exclusively on the encouragement and equipping of his disciples for their ministry which lies ahead. But for today, let us look at Christ's final summary statement as his public ministry comes to a close, starting in verses 44 and 45. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. And then notice verses 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life, what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. As seems to be the case whenever I have preached in recent months, the text at hand 
has led me to point out that Jesus and the Father are one. And that's to be expected because one of the main themes of the book of John is Christ's deity, his divinity. John's purpose for writing his gospel account is that we may see and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. In our passage today, Jesus bookends this public call to believe with statements of his divinity and his unity with the Father, saying, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Jesus is the original Imago Dei, but not merely created in God's image, like you or me or Adam and Eve, but begotten. Jesus the Son shares in the self-same nature as the Father. Jesus is eternal. He has never not been, and he has never not been God. There was a time when he was not yet flesh, not yet incarnate, but in the fullness of time, Jesus was born in the likeness of men, becoming flesh in the full, unmarred image of God. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that Christ, in his human form, was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Christ was and is, in all ways, a perfect representative of God the Father. And more than that, he is co-equal and one with him. So then, whenever Jesus has spoken, it is God who has spoken. He has said, as the Father has told him. Whatever Jesus has done, whatever works he has performed, it is God who has done them. His works, his words, his entire life has always and only been in line with the Father's will. Such that anyone then who believes in Christ is believing not only in Jesus, but also in the one who sent him. There's a Jewish saying that goes, One sent is as he who sent him. That is to say that someone who comes as a representative is to be given the same consideration as whom they represent. For example, if someone were to show up on my doorstep sent from the palace of King Charles III, assuming that this person is legitimate, I would be expected to receive him and treat him as though he were the king himself. I would not be at liberty to disregard him if he didn't show up in a limousine, wearing a three-piece suit, or if I you know, didn't believe his British accent. I would still have to regard him as being from the king. And this is what the Jewish leaders have failed to do with God's own son. They have instead disregarded and rejected Christ because he was not who they expected. And he was not who they wanted. He was not the Messiah they were looking for. The leaders of Israel wanted deliverance from Roman occupation, and Jesus didn't come with military force. Instead, he warned against harboring bitterness and seeking vengeance. The Pharisees were concerned primarily with being right and well thought of. And Jesus taught about humility and private devotion instead of, instead of public displays of false piety. Jesus offered mercy and forgiveness to those despised by the Pharisees. And so he, in turn, was also despised by them. Jesus was not like the God they had created for themselves, one who was like they were, and so they did not receive him as from God. And not only have they rejected the man, Jesus, they have rejected his message, his saving commandment. Repent and believe that he is the Christ and receive eternal life. This belief in Christ's word, or sorry, this unbelief in Christ's word, all stems from the Pharisees' unbelief in the rest of the scriptures. 
And despite what they would claim, the Pharisees had demonstrated their inability and unwillingness to use the law lawfully, that is, to have it humble them and show them their need for mercy and grace. They had done the same with the prophets, refusing to see that the core of the prophetic message was again pointing to the advent of Christ. Their willful blindness to the law and the prophets, God earlier, God's earlier revelation, has led to subsequent blindness and unbelief in God's latter revelation in the flesh by way of his incarnate Son. It has been, as Christ's parable in Mark 12, about the tenants in the vineyard. In this story, the founder and owner of the vineyard goes away for a season, and then when harvest time comes, he sends his servants, his representatives, to collect some of the fruit of the harvest. But instead of receiving these servants, the tenants beat them and send them away. And this has been fulfilled historically in the rejection of the prophets, and in Christ's day in the rejection and death of John the Baptist, and most recently in the plot to kill Lazarus. Everyone speaking about the kingdom and exalting Christ has been hated and persecuted by the religious leaders. These are the men put in charge of the vineyard. And then in the parable, when the owner sends his own son, the tenants not only reject him, but they scheme to kill him. And this is exactly what we've been seeing with Christ. Even though he came in the name of the Father, bearing the exact likeness of the Father, clearly speaking truth from the Father and doing his works, he has been despised and rejected by the leaders of Israel, and he would be sentenced to death by those whom he was sent, by those to whom he was sent. These religious leaders were mere stewards. They were entrusted to hold the old covenant people of God under the law until the time of Christ's advent. And now that the Son has arrived, they should have been quick to submit and relinquish the vineyard to him, but instead they scorned the one who was sent by God. Let's consider for a moment the word sent in our text. Jesus says, believe in him who sent me. Christ was sent by the Father, from the Father to fulfill the Father's purposes. Ponder just for a moment the condescension, the coming down of Christ into his creation. Consider the vast chasm between our dark and sinful world and the holy, exalted throne room of God. Christ, in the presence of the Father, surrounded by the riches of his glory, in all his immeasurable knowledge and power, not bound by time or space, eternal and infinite. For the second person of the Trinity to come down to the earth, to his creation, to be born of a woman, to grow and learn and walk among us, not just as a human, but as a suffering servant. This ought to be for us a humbling, pride-shattering thought. May we never lose sight of this great, unprecedented act of humility. If we ever think ourselves too important for a task, if we ever get hung up on what it is we think we deserve, if we ever grow weary of well-doing, let us come back to meditate on the condescension of Christ and his willingness to go when sent and serve according to the Father's will. Jesus Christ, source of all light, having dwelled in unapproachable light, has come down, having been sent, as light into the world. Now in verse 46, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 
We learned this morning in Sunday school about the transfiguration of Jesus where he met with Moses and Elijah and then he emitted pure white holy light such that the disciples fell on their faces. And we have in the book of John many references to light. We have in chapter 8 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And in chapter 9, he says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And this is all prefaced by John in chapter 1, which says that Christ was life, and the light, sorry, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John the Baptist bore witness to the light that was coming and has now come into the world in the form of Christ. There is a recurring contrast in the book of John between light and darkness. The world is dark. People are in darkness. We are blind. We are lost. Mankind, the whole of the world, is fumbling around in the darkness. People generally don't know what they're looking for, and if ever they grab hold of something, whether it's wealth or fame or the fleeting satisfaction of any number of other earthly pleasures, in the end, they are not satisfied. The things they grab onto are at best temporary and at worst a distraction from the fact that they are still lost. We remain in darkness and not just in the absence of light but in the presence of, of sin, in the practice of sin. The fallen person dwells in the darkness and likes it that way because their works are evil. As we've already read together this morning from John chapter 3, they hide from the light lest their sinful works be exposed. A fallen person doesn't desire to give up their sin, and at the same time they don't want their sin to be found out. The scripture tells us that this is the natural inclination of all of our hearts. Can we not still identify with our fallen parents, Adam and Eve, who after disobeying God sought to quickly hide themselves from his presence, knowing that they were guilty? Who of us as children cheerfully and voluntarily confessed our disobedience, our petty theft or our mistreatment of a sibling? Who of us even now would be eager to have the secret sins of our hearts and minds put on display for all to see? Yes, it is very natural for us to love the darkness rather than the light. And in the darkness, we would all remain but for God's grace, grace through Christ. For those of us who have been given spiritual sight, his light has pierced through the darkness. We are then able to turn and run to the light and be delivered from the slavery of sin and the penalty of death. Instead of hating the light as we once did, we love it because by it we have been saved. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. As a result of receiving this light, we become children of light, children of the day. We are no longer of the night or of the darkness. In Matthew 5, Jesus calls his disciples, and by extension us, the light of the world. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And this is what Christ has done. He has lived his life to the glory of God for all to see. And for his true disciples, those who have been drawn to the light, they follow him on earth, and now we continue to follow his commandments in his absence. For those who have hated the light, they sought to cover it up and snuff it out. But as it is with all light, darkness cannot overcome it. Instead, it is the light that overcomes the darkness. And so it is with Christ, who, though he was put to death, the darkness of the grave could not overcome him. As the hymn says, no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. Therefore, we, in light of Christ's resurrection, whoever is united to Christ by faith, can live in victorious hope with the light of Christ shining in and through us, walking as children of light in the midst of a dark world. Let's take a look quickly at the Apostle Paul's words from Ephesians 5 as he explains some of what it means to, to be a child and be one of the children of light. Starting in verse 1, if you, you can turn there if you like, Ephesians 5, verse 1 and following. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become part partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now... You are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, verse 14, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Another reference to light. So notice from this passage then, three qualities of light. Three qualities of the fruit produced in children of light, found in all that is good and right and true. Light is good. It is of benefit to the world around us. The light of the sun brings heat and growth. Light brings color and vibrancy to the world. By it, we can see where we need to go and what needs to be done. We, as children of light, are to be good. We are to be moral, to have integrity. We are to be purity-preserving, life-giving people in our homes and schools and jobs and neighborhoods, 
we are to be a force for good. Where there is evil, we are not to be overcome by it, but overcome it with good, exposing it for what it is, revealing what is the will of God, what is pleasing to him, to the world, and to those living in the world. We are also to be characterized by what is right. We are to live rightly. We are to be righteous. We are to be blameless. Now, this side of glory, we will not be sinless. And when we do sin, we are to expose it to the light of Christ by confessing it to God and to one another. God sees us for who we are. And so we willingly bring our failures and weaknesses and fears to him that he might shine his light upon us and eliminate the darkness. Children of Christ are positionally righteous because Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. Therefore, we are to live rightly. We are to practice righteousness by his strength and by walking according to the indwelling spirit. And the third quality, third characteristic is supposed to be truth. We are to be truth tellers, not bearing false witness against one another, not slanderers, nor gossips. We are to guard one another's reputations, speaking about others the way we would want to be spoken about. We acknowledge the truth about ourselves, about others, and then we value and uphold the truths of God's word. Just as light reveals the reality of all it shines upon, we too speak the truth in love to the edification and encouragement of our brothers and sisters in the light that we would all be conformed more to Christ, in whom goodness and righteousness and truth reside in full measure. These are characteristics of light, which are to be ours and increasing as children of light. Where scripture is clear that if you are not a child of light, you are a child of darkness. There's no gray area. There is only light and darkness. There is only true belief and unbelief. And as Christ comes to the main point of this, his final warning to the crowd, he again zeroes in on those who have, to some extent, followed him, but have fallen short of saving faith. And we continue on now in verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus says that those who have heard his words but have not accepted them as truth, as authoritative and requiring repentance, have not actually received them. These people do not require further judgment or condemnation because Christ's message itself is what judges them. The gospel itself judges between light and darkness. Like the rest of scripture, it judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. How a person approaches God's word, and particularly the gospel, how they respond to it, is the best indicator of whether or not that person stands justified or whether they're condemned. And from those to whom much is given, much will be required. Those in Jesus' day who stood in his presence and rejected the gospel from his own mouth will face a harsher judgment than those whom have never heard it. But make no mistake, 
Any of us here who have heard the gospel repeatedly, maybe for our whole lives, having grown up in the church but have fallen short of true belief and repentance, will likewise stand condemned. To paraphrase D.A. Carson, he says, There is a peculiar standard of judgment applied to those who hear Jesus' words but do not keep them. Just as those who were steeped in the words of Moses, the law, would be judged by them and find themselves condemned, so anyone who rejects Jesus, anyone who hears his words but does not accept them as they are to be taken, those very words will condemn him at the last day. Now we'll consider the, the last day a little bit more um, later on, but for the time being in our text, the latter part of verse 47 Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. To clarify, it was not Jesus' present purpose, it was not his first advent mission to judge the world, but to save it. So let us consider four ways that he has accomplished this. Four purposes for Christ's having been sent. And some credit for these points goes to uh, Alistair Begg, whom I will paraphrase, but I will not attempt a Scottish accent. Purpose number one, Christ came to take away our sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel came to Joseph, Mary's husband-to-be, and said to him, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Similarly, as Jesus began his earthly ministry in John's gospel, John the Baptist announces, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And the Apostle Paul builds on this theme in Romans 5, verse 8, where he says, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus declares to Zacchaeus in Luke 19, up in that tree, he says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the way Christ would accomplish this part of his first Advent mission was on the cross of Calvary, where he willingly gave himself up for his people. And we often equate Christ's first Advent with Christmas, which is fine as far as that goes, so long as we remember that Christmas had as its goal Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday, when Christ utterly triumphed over the grave, and he demonstrated victory over death, and he paved the path to reconciliation with God. Well, that's purpose number one. Purpose number two, why Christ was sent, to destroy Satan's work. At his incarnation, our Savior came not only to defeat death, but also, as 1 John 3 verse 8 says, to destroy the works of the devil. The arrival of Christ in Bethlehem was a signal of the beginning of the end for Satan and all his ways. Now, we must bear in mind that the devil is still active and alive, even though he has been doomed to fail since the beginning. We remember the first gospel message way back in Genesis 3, where God promised to send a far-off descendant of Eve to be the serpent's head crusher. But to this day, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But even though he prowls, Satan is chained. He may snarl and grab for us, but Christ came to destroy his works. And how so? Well, Scripture assures us that everyone who has been born of God, and this is referring to believers, do not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, that person, 
he who is born of God, that is referring to Jesus. Jesus protects him and us, and the evil one does not touch us. Jesus guards all those who come after him. And though Satan deceives and accuses and lies and hinders, he cannot touch us. We are secure. And Satan's time is nearly up. His final destruction has been guaranteed. And to this I would add that Jesus is progressively crushing Satan. Progressively saving the world by dealing Satan's kingdom blow after blow every time a soul is brought out of the darkness into the light. God's kingdom grows and Satan's suffers loss as Christ builds the church. Purpose number three. Christ was sent to make the Father known. And we have already considered this point to some degree. Jesus was God's revelation in the flesh. But because we have Jesus' life to look at, we no, have to, we no longer have to wonder what God is like. We can gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Christ. And as John's Gospel puts it, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus Christ has made him known. Jesus is not only the Word incarnate, he is God's final message to the world, his last word. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. What a wondrous mystery it is that Christ came as an infant, that he was nursed and swaddled by Mary and perhaps rocked to sleep in the arms of his earthly father, and yet he was and remains truly God. Though Jesus would have cried like any other infant, he would also eventually declare with absolute authority, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's John 14 verse 9. And then we have the fourth purpose of Christ's coming, his first coming, which is to, pre to prepare for his second coming. John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Much as the people of God awaited his first coming, so we now eagerly anticipate the second and in the time between these advents, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. He tells us, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you will be also. John 14, verse 3. When Christ does return, he will come not to atone again for our sin, for that has been finished. But as Hebrews 9, verse 28 says, he will return to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Begg writes, the New Testament pulsates with this great gospel assurance. Surely, that is, surely as Christ came humbly that first advent, he will return in awesome power and glory at his second. Now this is in reference to the last day, which we see in verse 48 of our text, when Christ will complete his work, sorry, his world-saving work, putting all of his enemies under his feet and destroying the last enemy, which is death. In this way, the world will have been saved forever, the curse having finally been entirely eradicated, and Christ will be exalted over all as he visibly rules over the whole of his creation. And so there, there we have, we have this challenge that Christ has issued to these crowds, this call to believe, and it comes to us the same way. 
the call to believe that he is the Son of God and that in him you have seen the Father. To believe that his word is God's word, that it is authoritative. And to believe his commandment, that is eternal life. Treat this gospel opportunity that you are sitting in today, treat it as though it may be your last. Do not presume upon our Lord's forbearance and patience. Do not wait to repent and believe. Because though God is patient, there is a judgment coming. Do not make the mistake, as some do, in concluding from this passage that Christ will never judge, that he will never condemn. Because Jesus himself says in John 5 that the Father has given him the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Christ will judge, and he is a just judge. He is good and righteous and true. He has all authority. He reigns and will reign as king in his Father's everlasting kingdom. For we all will have Christ as king. Every knee will bow on that last day. We all will have him as judge when he separates the just from the unjust. If you are ruled by Christ apart from his mercy, you will be crushed as an enemy. If you are judged by him apart from his grace, you will be condemned, cast away into outer darkness. But the good news of the gospel is that the same Christ who reigns and judges also saves. He is a wonderful, merciful Savior to all who come to him in repentance and faith. He is willing and able to save. He is the one Savior sent into the world. And this is the only way to be, to be declared righteous, to be justified, this is the only way to be delivered from the judgment your sin deserves. Believe and rest upon Christ alone and his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. Then follow Christ. Follow him privately and publicly. Walk in obedience. Be baptized as a public profession of what Christ has done. And then spend your life serving him as part of a local body of believers. And know that even if obedience comes at a cost, here and now, that one day you will be raised in his likeness, saved to reign with Christ in his eternal kingdom, a gloriously remade heavens and earth, free from sin and sorrow and death. You will be received as a child of light into the favorable presence of God, where his own glory will be our light, and Jesus Christ, the Lamb, will be our lamp forever. Amen.